This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to My Favorite Murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgareth. And we're here to talk to you about um, some important stuff mm-hmm. having to do with multi-level marketing. That's Are right. Are ready? Have, do you know your warranty is almost expired? If you buy this one pair of leggings is the only print of this that I have <laughs> in stock for the next couple hours. Oh, yeah. Karen has a whole box of those out in the garage. Oh, if you put them patterns. on all at once, they look amazing. Oh, it's get attention at your next book club. <laughs> Do it. Hey, are you reading any books? Um, Yes. We got sent a box. Mm, yeah, this is a problem because I don't have anything near me. <laughs> but we got sent a box of books by a listener who oh, works yeah. in a bookstore and sent us a bunch of books like that that was like dead stock from their true crime section. Totally. Did you get some too? Yeah. Um, Asia was like, I'm going to give you half and you half, Karen, and you guys can figure it out. And so, so I have like a bunch of John, Wal- like a John Walsh vintage book and like... Some Anne Rule in there. Totally. Yeah. So right now I'm reading a book about one of the first women who went searching for missing people essentially in the 70s and 80s no way yes started a search and rescue and then went into basically became a private detective (gasps) and started you know for hire going to look for people who are missing wow that's incredible the book is called finder the true story of a private investigator and it's by marilyn green she's the finder wow and gary provost so So, you're gonna cover her one day do you think i mean Yes, probably, because there's it's one of those things where it's just her career. So she talks about all these different mm-hmm. cases that she's been involved in. So there's definitely lots to choose from in there. Um, I was just going to try to see when it was published. Because this this is totally the kind of book that would be on my mom's nightstand. Yeah, that you'd sneak. It was published in 1988. Aw. The year I graduated from high school. Aww. Anyway. Pretty, um, pretty fascinating. I mean, it was one of those kind of things where I was trying to read Moby Dick. I think I told you that. (laughs) That's right. Very dense book. Hard pass. Hard pass. Um, I loved, I loved (laughs) trying to read it. And I, it's the kind of thing where I just, I'm pretty sure I have ADD. I would have to pull a piece of paper down line by line so that I can (laughs) read forward and scan and do a bunch of shit. Yeah. But then after a while, it wasn't, it was it almost felt like I was getting into bed and starting homework assignments. Yeah. So these are the kind of books where I read until I can't open, keep my totally. eyes open anymore. 
Yeah. That reminds me of when I was in high school and I was like declaring myself an atheist. So I was like, okay, but if you're going to be an atheist, you have to be informed. So I made myself try to read the Bible. Oh, no, uh, <laughs> no, that was confusing. I did not Quite. get very far. Here's the thing. It's really old. It's so old. And there's a ton of numbers in there, which numbers. is not like normal books. And it's like fucking learn basic grammar. You know what I mean? Like, oh, <laughs> smite and, and say this and smiting the Lord. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so I just decided yeah. to just be an atheist that doesn't know a lot about the Bible instead. I mean, you know, you can just be like, it's more of a conceptual thing. But if you can bring me some pieces of the Bible that you think I'd love, I'm open to it. You could uh, yeah. do it that way. Can you jump around? Let Give me a part, your favorite part of the Bible and I'll jump around. I, I don't think it's chronological. I think you can jump around and just go from Psalms to fucking revelations. Mm -hmm. Make it happen for yourself. That's right. I studied the Torah in Hebrew school. I've done enough, you know? Wow. I mean, you're 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 kind of a biblical scholar. Kind of, right? I'm basically a biblical doctor right now. Tad, can I ask you a question? I'm not trying to question you having said you just studied the Torah. Yeah. Am I wrong in thinking uh -huh. that the Torah uh -huh. is the Old Testament? Yeah. Part one. <laughs> so, okay. It's not a different Jewish book. No. The Torah it's, is the Old Testament. Yeah. It's the Bible. Too. Yeah. It's that's okay. Yeah. So Great. I was going to try to read part two and I just couldn't. <laughs> couldn't get there nobody likes you know oh uh, what's the word sequel? I'm for yes thank sequel. you shit <laughs> sequels always drop the ball the bible electric boogaloo i mean it's such a downer at the end <laughs> kill him uh what are you reading besides oh, the bible these days i have my book i'm on my bed I have, i'm on my bed right now so i'm reading a book called the world gives way by marissa levine and it's a total sci-fi, end-of-the-world apocalypse book. Perfect. About, like, a thousand years in the future, we had to escape Earth on a pod. And there are, like, different caste systems. And, like, suddenly there's a rip in the side of the fucking ship that is now Earth. Oh. And end-of-the-world. It's really good. You know I love a good apocalypse yeah, Look. it's for some reason these days, apocalypse stories are very satisfying and, and oh, yeah, they really are doing it. Well, it's nice when you're living in one to have someone to ha to be like, is this possibly what could happen? Because right, it would be just nice to have any kind of guide. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, here's an here's something to to counteract that apocalyptic vibe. Great. Um, also, Mercury's in retrograde. Oh, is again. It? Shit. Um, or it's about to be, but, uh, no, I try not to get too specific about that, but I have to give credit where credit is due because at TC Liddell or little on Twitter, they let me know that season two of love on the spectrum had begun, right? Which is an amazing Netflix series about people who are on the autism spectrum or who are neurodivergent, I believe mm -hmm. is the term. And they are trying, they're trying to date some for the first time in their adult lives. Season one was probably a, a year ago in the pandemic. Yeah. Unbelievable, beautiful Australian television making. Season two is just as good. A lot of the people are back again. It's beautiful, beautiful television. But yeah. it will it will break you emotionally. Like you have to 
you know, you can't be coming off something hard yeah. and then go into love on the spectrum because you'll just be a mess for days. You'll just cry the whole time at the end of it. It's got a big heart. It's a really big hearted show. Right. And it's also kind of like it's the thing where I think a lot of people who uh, like to believe that they are not neurodivergent, although bring me bring me the person that isn't. <laughs> but a lot of people watch that show and think, oh, look at them. That's their experience. Right. And what you as you watch the show, you realize everything they're saying and everything they're worried about and everything they're excited about. That's what everyone is like when it comes to love. Totally. It's the same across the board. So it's like it's actually a show about you. You're watching yourself try to date. You're watching yourself try to be vulnerable and try to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of the people on this show are so good at it. They're so themselves. Yeah. Their concern is just, I'm going to be myself. I hope they like me totally. as opposed to a lot of people who are just like, well, mask number 16 will go on and then we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. Or you get through your whole life in a mask instead of having to be your authentic self and never find true love because you just don't have the capabilities to be a hundred percent authentic and assume or hope someone will love you. Yeah. For that reason. It's very like it gets to the heart of a lot of things. It's real sensitive TV viewing. It's real good. Real good. I'll, I'll watch it. The only thing that's been in my house lately, we've just evolved into this point of all we watch are Guy Fieri shows. That's oh. all we watch now. He's like Diners, drives and dr drive throughs and dive ins. All of those things. Guys yeah. Grocery Games is another great one that we're big What's fans that a, of. Is that like a game show? It's like, yeah. So you so he has this like fake grocery store set up and chef contestants come on and they, it's like, OK, you have to make me a, you know, spicy lunch with these parameters. And then it's like supermarket sweeps where they have to run through the fucking grocery store picking out all the things. Yes. You know, with like hardcore parameters like added in last minute it's just like a really fun game show it's like really i have fun. gluten issues make me a dish <laughs> yeah exactly or now you have to use this one ingredient you have to use sriracha in your dessert go yeah it's fun oh that sounds fun yeah that and then we watched cat williams till like two in the morning oh, the other the funniest. night the funniest. the funniest his first special we watched it was a dream a dream he's yeah. a genius is that the one where he does that thing where he has the DJ give the cue? Um, uh, every day I'm hustling, hustling. <laughs> and he keeps being like different scenarios. No, I haven't seen that, that part yet. Is oh, he in he's in green. He looks like a hilarious leprechaun. <laughs> that man is such a good stand up comic. Ah. He is such, it's just amazing. Someone, I saw people talking about him on Twitter one time saying, you will almost never see a comic open because I think they were talking about his most recent special. Mm -hmm. um, you'll never see a comic open up and start doing local jokes and kill. Totally. Like, that almost never happens. But this guy, because it's the one where he filmed it in Florida, uh -huh. I believe. Uh -huh. And he was just doing like, you know, Florida jokes and, and I, wherever they were, I can't remember. Yeah what city but it was amazing and you didn't have to right you didn't have to know to know and like, he's like that good the audience is loving it so much that you're enjoying it with them because even if you don't understand like even if you've never been to a waffle house you can understand his joke about a fucking waffle house like it makes yes, sense you you get the he paints the picture perfectly for exactly. you Cat Williams, everyone just sit and fucking watch his documentary i mean watch the specials. watch the master uh 
There's a, I think we're supposed to tease this. There's a brand new Nick Terry um, <gasps> animated that <sighs> is on the Exactly Right Media YouTube page. You can go right now and watch oh. it. Oh. It's a classic. He is a comedy genius. It's got nothing to do with us. He just takes some like little snippet of a thing we say. In this I case, I disagree. It's all <laughs> us. <laughs> no, he's so good. He's so good. This one is about. This is from a hometown. Uh, can, should be. It's about a can of peaches and a dick, and it's just the funniest. And what more do you need? What more do you need? It's the funniest video. What's our um, YouTube account? Exactly right media. Exactly right media. Okay. You said that already. Good. Yeah. Go check. Will you please also subscribe to our channel? It helps. It helps. Everything helps. <laughs> Subscribing to things, being a part of things, yeah. showing up. Yeah. Telling a friend. It all helps. High-fiving. All of it. Pictures of your animals. Just whatever you need us yeah. to know about. All of it. Yeah. Um. Anything else? Should we just get this thing started? No. Yeah. Let's get this started. Jesus, is that a record for the quickest intro maybe you know we're back into recording again so things are we're, things are moving along it's like right. every i it feels like we finish one recording and we turn around and here we go yes it's happening again Some and the imbalance of the, what i'm doing in my life versus how much we're recording is really <laughs> going to start showing pretty soon right yeah when we actually could leave the house regularly have lives do things talk to people we the recording the intros would be 45 minutes. Yeah. But there this, were things to say. This 15 minutes reflects the lack of things <laughs> that are happening in our fucking lives. And literally everyone's like, we like it that way. <laughs> Stop talking. Just tell the fucking story. <laughs> okay. All right, fine. I will. I'm first. Good. Right? Yep. Okay. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like, perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea, because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional, and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. All right, Karen. So this week's story, as they always do, is going to stick with me for the rest of my life, partly because it's a story. um, It's just a tragedy that could have had so many opportunities to be avoided. And there were so many missteps and mishandlings. And then on top of that, the families of the victims had to fight for justice. So this is the story of the highest death toll in British sporting history, the Hillsborough disaster. Oh God. I know, I know. I've seen I've seen I think video of this. I think Yes. There's okay, a 30 for 30 about it, which is great. So my sources today are there's like a bunch of BBC News staff articles, of course. There's a BBC podcast about it. Um there's a YouTube video about it. And then there's actually the report of the Hillsborough Independent Panel. Um, I also watched the Sky News documentary, the 30 for 30, and a Britannica article, and of course, Wikipedia. So there is a myriad of reasons why this disaster occurred. And there are all these like little and big things that added up to this day that made it so that so many people lost their lives. So like if you had taken one of those or two of those little things out of the equation, it might not have been such a huge disaster. So let me go through, let's start with going through the day. So Saturday, April 15th, 1989, the Football Association Cup is holding the semifinal match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. And it's being held at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, England. So I guess you and I have been to a a football match, a soccer match in England when we were there last time. Yes, we were. It was incredible. And so just as everyone knows, soccer or football, as it's known in England, is huge. It's like the biggest thing. It's our baseball and football put together families go it like you live in a town and like that's your team and you're just like 
you're just like, it's the same as here with baseball or football. Like that is your home team and you will wear stupid cheese hats and paint your body and like buy all the things because you're so obsessed with them. It's your life. It's like part of the life and culture there. And one of the things when we were at that game, you and me and Vince after our London show, mm-hmm. the songs, the chants. Yes. There was a whole like, yeah, everyone has a chance. And it's really big groups of people all knowing the words to those songs and cheering and doing it. It's really it's moving to the point of being a little bit scary. It's powerful. It's very powerful. And it is like it. it it is this huge, you know, we went in, there's people are, it's like when you go into a baseball game and you walk down to get to the stadium and you feel that huge rush and it's so exciting. It's that, but like happy, excited British people. So it's just like this surge. We should probably say for the most part, British men. A I, don't, lot of, I don't. Yes. I think you and I and maybe three other gals were there. <laughs> it right. felt like to me. Yes. But it is this like it's their culture. It's their, it's what they do. You go to these matches. You ha- you you are you support these clubs and you yell at other people about how they're wrong about supporting their clubs. And depending <laughs> on where you're from, you know what I mean? Yep. So sure. British people are going to get real mad at me for this one. You're just explaining sports. I am. Just the concept of sports. And you're not going to believe it. There's snacks and beer there. (laughs) And clapping. And clapping. And there's a ball on the field. There's players doing things to the ball. It's really exciting. Yeah. But I do think there's like a fervor there about their football that doesn't really translate to like, maybe maybe our football is the closest. Right. Right. Okay. So, so this is the game between... The Liverpool Club and the Nottingham Forest Club. Um, it's being held in Sheffield, which so it's kind of like an even playing field because it's neither of the town, neither of the team's town, mm-hmm. South Yorkshire. So this is the semifinals. So it's the second biggest game ever. Obviously, the finals being the biggest. Makes mm-hmm. sense. So anyone with a ticket is super stoked to go. It's a beautiful, sunny, warm day. Perfect weather. The match is sold out. More than 54,000 fans are expected to enter Hillsborough Stadium before the 3 p.m. kickoff. And so due to what's known as football hooliganism, Mm. which basically means people get drunk and fight and beat up the other team's players or whatever, Liverpool fans are entered through a separate entrance than the Nottingham Forest fans. It's just two different sides of the stadium. When we went, we sat in a part for people who weren't fans of either team or just like spectators. But Is that could, true? Yeah, but you could oh. see that, like, this team over here was singing for, I think it was Manchester we were there for. Like, they, they're seated in different sections. So that yes, there's, and no... there's cops. There's cops that are po- posted down the right. stairs to keep people in their sections. That's right. Or to um, protect people, like right. the away team. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay, so the entrance for the Liverpool ticket holders is on uh, what's known as Leppings Lane. It's the street on one side of the stadium. So over 10,000 people have tickets for that area. It's the standing room only section known as the Terrace. So all these 10,000 fans can only enter through this Leppings Lane entrance, and it only has seven turnstiles for 10,000 people trying to get there before three o'clock. So Mm -hmm. clearly that's inadequate to begin with. Once they're through the turnstiles, then fans make their way to the terrace pens or to the sections. 
either through a tunnel that's right in front of them or two less obvious side entrances that you can't, you can't even see. When you walk through the turnstiles, you just see this one entrance and you think, well, this is must be the way to go to all of them. But uh, it's not. The terrace itself, where the standing room only section is, it's basically just like um, shallow concrete steps. So it's like a little, you know, you stand, there's a step down, there's a step down, there's a step down. And then there's barriers like every few steps to keep people from like pushing forward. So there, then there are also lateral fences dividing the terrace into pens. So you can't like, it's not like a whole thing. It's like, this is a pen for a thousand people. This one next to it's pen for a thousand people. You can't go between them. It's basically like an animal pen. It's right. like clearly a bad design when you just look at it. And there's only, en- the only exits are through the back. So if you go in and get to the front, you can't just turn around and go back if they're totally full. Right. And then there's also a fence in the front to prevent people from going onto the field. And at the front of each pen uh, um, located on the perimeter fence, there's a small gate, but it's locked. By two o'clock, just over 2,000 fans has have entered the terrace. Um, and most of them are in pens three and four, which is the one that you walk forward into. They have capacities of 1,000 and 1,100 people. And one of the other reasons they're most popular, aside from being able to just walk right into them, is that they are directly behind the goal. So they're like incredible seats. Or oh, yeah. It's an incredible spot to be. But there's no security. There's no staff telling any of the fans where to go or using the crowd control to make sure like you don't have to just walk down this hallway. You can actually go over there. They sh- there should be people telling everyone where to go to disperse the crowd properly. By 2.15, a large crowd is gathering outside uh, Leppings Lane by the turnstiles trying to get through them. So there's only 30 minutes left until kickoff. And there's just over 4,300 fans that have made it through the turnstile. And there's another 5,000 still waiting their turn to get through those seven turnstiles. An announcement is made over the loudspeaker asking the fans in those two pens, three and four, to move forward or spread out sideways or to move to a different pen, but there's no way for them to do it. They'd have to backtrack and go out through the back exits where people are pushing their way in. So Mm. it's not that easy. By 2.35, there's so many people in Lepping's Lane that fans are pressed against the turnstile and they become difficult to even operate and people start to be jammed up just in the turnstiles alone. And there's video of this. It's yeah. Inside the stadium, the pens three and four are reaching capacity already. Police officers discuss delaying the game until all the fans have made it to the terrace, but it's dismissed. That idea is dismissed. Instead, at 2.52 p.m., Yorkshire Police Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, who had little experience policing soccer matches, he gives the order to open the exit gate that's right next to the turnstiles, but they normally would have opened to let people leave. Open it, just let people in so we can relieve this crowding. So the gate stays open for about five minutes, but it's enough time to let a huge surge of fans into the stadium at once. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the tipping point. It seems like there's so many errors that have already been made and so many problems with, you know, policing the crowd. But this seems like the surge that tips everything over. So around 2000 fans now start walking to the terrace via that tunnel that's already almost at capacity, completely unaware that they'll be forced into pens three and four. Um, And as the tunnel quickly fills with fans, the people in the front of the pens start to get pushed up against that gate behind the goal 
This is making me panic. I, I, and I don't think I'm a person that's like that, like, um, has claustrophobia or anything easily. Yeah. But this idea of being stuck in a crowd, like an unmanaged crowd really upsets me. I fucking hate, I hate the idea. I think that's why I, a couple times when I was watching video and like the documentaries, I got lightheaded. It's, this yep. is what I do have problems with claustrophobia and crowd. And so I don't think, but I don't think anyone needs to have a fear of that no, to understand for, how terrifying this is. Yeah, this is horrible. And I think this is one of the many reasons that this one is just like, it sticks with you. It reminds me of the one you did of the Who concert. Was that right? Yep. yep. Same fucking story. Yeah. I mean, it's just horrible. Yeah. So now that the gate was opened, this surge of people were able to come in. Around 2,000 fans now start walking to the terrace via the tunnel. They're totally unaware that they'll be forced into pens three and four, which are already packed. Um, so people in the front of the pens start to get pushed against the front gate, you know, where there's a locked door and then the and the, the wall is really high. And it's like, um, you know, when fences at the top are turned in so that people can't climb over them just because yeah. of hooliganism. You know, but no one thought about safety. And, <laughs> clearly. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, they're more concerned with keeping people off the right. pitch, right? Yeah. Hey, you Hi. know the word pitch. I pay attention when we go to things in London. I'm impressed. <laughs> so some fans start escaping by climbing over the, the side fences to get into the pens that are next to them, where there's like nobody in them, by the way. Like if there had been some kind of crowd control, this would have never happened. Oh, no. I know. You mean that the things right next to them are empty are like almost empty. But and like they're the kind of walls that it's like you'd have to be a strong young person to be able to climb that fence. Like I, as a 41 year old woman, would never be able to yank myself up there. But I think people are helping each other, boosting each other out Mm. um, to get to the side pens. But then at. 254, as all these people are making their way in, the players go onto the field. And so fans in the stadium start cheering, which means the people who are going down the tunnels think something's happening and starting. And so they start pushing forward even more like an excitement. And so that happens again when the game starts at 259. And then again, five minutes later, when Liverpool takes a shot at the goal. So everyone goes wild. So even more people start pushing their way in down that Mm. tunnel. Yeah, it's terrifying. So there's just this surge of people moving forward. At this point, one of the crush barriers, which is basically just a metal rail to keep people like, you know, here's a a little group of people. Here's a little group like one of those metal rails collapses under the weight of all the people, which just tells you how crazy like it's a metal fucking railing in concrete. Oh, so that thing collapses, which means a bunch of people topple forward again. So on to the people in the front. I know. This is terrifying. And more increased pressure on those in the front of the pens. So fans are beginning to be so crushed they can't breathe. And those in the front are losing consciousness. Oh, my God. I know. As pens three and four continue to fill to the brim. And you can see it in these videos. It's like this swaying surge of humans. Like some people you can tell don't really know what's going on. And they're like cheering for the team thinking this is normal. Some people you can tell are being knocked off their feet. And so they're like trying to control it. But it's just this wave of humans. Yeah. At this point, there's too many people to have like one guy go, hold on. Right. This or that. Everyone go. There's people in the front who can't breathe. Like there's just it's so many people. 
So as they fill, the police officers interpret the crowd being unruly instead of actually being filled to capacity. So they think there's, quote, signs of potential disorder. And consequently, they were the cops were slow to realize that spectators being crushed, injured and killed. They thought they were just being hooligans. Fans screamed to police officers to like from over the gate to unlock the front gate. But the police do nothing, quote, they just seem transfixed. Like they didn't know what was going on. There's nobody in charge telling them how to handle a situation like this. They've never been prepped for safety, only how to control hooligans, not for like fan safety. Fans try to escape the pen any way they can. So people in the upper tiers in the level ahead above them, which is like the height of two or three people. So the people in the pen start lifting other people up to the rafters above them and those people lean over and just pull them to safety and it's it's heart-wrenching to see that happen horrifying like all all the fans are realizing something is not fucking right and are trying to save each other and help each other and the police at one point think it's hooliganism and they think that they're trying to get onto the field so they start pushing them back down into the pen no yeah it's ugly it's fucking horrible So, yeah, they think that the fans are trying to rush the field when really they're just trying to get to fucking safety. Yeah. Yeah. At 3.06 p.m., police finally realize people in pens three and four are being crushed and tell the referee to stop the game. Finally, eventually the small lock gates at the front of the pens are open and fans start cascading out. I looked it up about like there's like a article. I think it's The Guardian that tells you times estimated times when people died. And it's estimated the first person may have died at 2.57, meaning by 3.06 p.m. when the police finally realized what was actually going on and unlocked the gate. It had been like 10 minutes of people dying before the authorities intervened. Meanwhile, okay, this is fucked up. Two, there's just a huge game, right? Like this is the semifinals, which means people at home are watching the game live on TV and listening to it on the radio, meaning the people whose family and friends are at this game in the fucking, they know they're in standing room only, are listening and watching this fucking happen. Oh, my God. Yeah. So hundreds of people are able to make it out of the pens and onto the field. Many fans start helping rescue others who are still stuck or are injured because no ambulances had arrived since no authority figures had called them. Like it took them a while to realize what was even going on. And the ambulance, too, were kind of negligent and saying, like, well, we can't send that many ambulances like what? And, and they weren't told the enormity of the situation. So they're still not there. So fans start ripping down like the advertisements and using them as stretchers to carry the injured to um, across the field of the gymnasium, hoping that they can receive medical attention there. So like this is not fucking hooligans. These are fans trying to help save each other. Yeah, it's it's truly like that's all you have is yeah. the, is the kindness of the strangers around you. Totally. Hopefully. If you're like if your ribs got crushed and you can't breathe. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> At 3:15, an ambulance finally makes its way through the crowd to pens 3 and 4. One ambulance, another ambulance shows up. Clearly it's nowhere near enough to help. Eventually the gymnasium becomes the makeshift morgue. Because only 14 of the fans who lost their lives were ever even able to make it to the hospital. That's how long like they could have been saved if they had gotten to the hospital. But because there was no ambulances there to take them, only 14 made it. 
In total, 96 men, women, and children lost their lives that day. Oh, my God. I know. I only was thinking about men. I didn't. I did not think about, of course, there were kids there. The youngest victim was 10 years old. Oh, my God. You bring your kids to the game. The oldest victims was 67. You bring your grandpa brings. Yes, the tradition. It's yeah. tradition. I yeah. mean, like, oh, God, two, two, horrible. Sis- two like teenage sisters were killed together. Like there's an article on ITV News of how and when all 96 victims died. And it tells you a little bit about each of the victim um, if you want to check that out. But, yeah, it's, you know. It's heartbreaking. It's just normal people. And and they went that day with their friends to see this really exciting game that they've probably seen a million like it their whole lives and, and did not expect this, obviously. Yeah. So South Yorkshire police officials, including the chief constable of South Yorkshire police, Peter Wright, are immediately like that evening start casting blame on the fans and the victims themselves. Um, they alleged that they were drunk and disorderly. In fact, Duckenfield, the Yorkshire police chief superintendent, David Duckenfield, claims that the fans had forced open that gate, the exit gate, not that he had actually ordered it open to relieve the crowds. So he lies and says that they were so disorderly, they, they broke it open. Um, the media and tabloid outlets start running with this angle that the Liverpool fans are to blame for everything. They say they broke into the stadium and caused an inrush in the Pens 3 and 4, which caused the fatal crushing. And also that people who didn't have tickets were part of the re- like reason there were so many people there, which isn't true. Um, this story is broadcast internationally. This is the this is the angle that goes out. And this is the. Like, this is the explanation in everyone's minds immediately, which is, you know, the explanation that ends up sticking is whatever comes out first. On April 19th, the fucking tabloid, The Sun, publishes a blasphemous front page article titled The Truth, which details how Liverpool fans had, quote, assaulted and urinated on police officers who were trying to resuscitate the dying, stolen, like pickpocketed the dead and verbally and sexually abused an unconscious woman. Like they were like just blasting so, out these rumors. None of it's straight true. Up lies. Yeah. Straight up lies that it turns out later were told to them and like facilitated by the higher ups. Oh, no. Yeah. Actually, it's later found out that the daughter of Chief Inspector of South Yorkshire Police, David Sumner, was one of the people who put in an anonymous tip that she had heard that someone in the crowd like tried to sexually assault a unconscious woman. God, that's um, dirty. I mean, that very is very really gross. That is like, <laughs> here's the thing. Accountability yes. really fucks people up sometimes. Yes. It's just like, here's the thing. If you did wrong and there's a tragedy, what you do is you say you're sorry, you take accountability and then you fucking peace out. Yeah. And you take your pension 
or whatever because <laughs> or, you your punishment. Be, or your punishment or your punishment your punishment because you shouldn't be in charge anymore because it, you are on the clock you're the one getting the money yeah. for being the big guy yeah so something fucks up like that idea is has slowly left a kind of humanity absolutely where it's just like no you're right go sew some shit in the tabloids yeah that will that will solve it yeah we can't take accountability for this even though it happened at our fucking stadium on with our, tv on tv with our fucking police force and our security and our ambulance and 96 96 people don't accidentally fucking die like that's not that's not a thing unless it's a legitimate accident which is even that is so hard to like pin down on what that is because there's still people accountable don't die at a soccer game right right all right so Within days of the disaster, Lord Justice Taylor is appointed to inquire into the events and to, quote, make recommendations about the needs of crowd control and safety at sport events. On August 1st, 1989, he publishes his report, which concludes that the fans were not responsible for the disaster and the, quote, real cause was overcrowding. And the main reason was the failure of police control. So finally, someone is acknowledging that, um, but it doesn't last. So don't cheer yet. Taylor criticizes senior officers for not closing pens three and four after gate C had been opened and not doing this caused a blunder of the first magnitude. Quote, Taylor points to match commander chief superintendent David Duckenfield for failing to give orders or, quote, exert any control when the disaster occurred. So not only did he he say that he wanted gate C open to get the crowd in, he didn't tell the officers on the ground that he had done that. So they also thought that this was just a surge of people breaking the door down. So he lied to everyone about it. Wow. Because of his inaction, the police had a, quote, sluggish reaction and response, which hindered the rescue of dying fans. Taylor also points to Duckenfield for leading many officials to believe the fans were responsible. He says, quote, this was not only untruthful, it also, quote, initiated a vilification campaign directed towards Liverpool fans. So the whole you know, society was like, fuck you. You guys caused this in a way saying you deserve this. And meanwhile, those who are hurt and dead and the families are having to like fight against society blaming them or like yeah this this concept that's get gets floated because i what i remember from that just like you know the most the remotest files of Mm -hmm. remembering the story was the picture of people trying to the other fans trying to lift the fans yeah that whole thing and the idea that that's it's like sowing the story that people aren't good. Right. And that's being sown by people who aren't good. The right. people on the ground and the people that were going through it actually displayed the ultimate like humanitarian. Right. I care about my fellow man type of thing. They yeah. were doing everything they could. And that this isn't supposed to happen here. Another thing that's really disturbing is a lot of these tabloids put photos on the covers of the close up of people getting crushed against the fence so you can see recognizable faces of people possibly already dead it's really fucking troubling okay so he found that only a small minority of fans had even been drinking but they didn't cause the overcrowding and there was no hooliganism so what follows is decades of the families of the victims being put through hell to try to get justice and answers and for someone to take fucking accountability in 1990 the crown prosecution service decides there is insufficient evidence to justify criminal proceedings against anybody. 
from any organizations for any offense arising out of the deaths. So it's just like, boop, out of sight, out of mind. Stop right. fucking worrying about it. In 1991, an inquest jury returns a verdict of accidental death, meaning it was just a fucking accident. Okay. In 1997, when another inquest is requested, then Prime Minister, it's later found out, Tony Blair, made a note across the paperwork saying, why? What's the point? Ooh. Yeah. So 20 years go by. And then in 2009, then Labor Ministers Andy Burnham and Maria Eagle finally resolve to call for all documents relating to the disaster to be published. In January 2010, the Home Security appoints the Hillsborough Independent Panel to do three things. Investigate the disaster, disclose documents about the disaster and its aftermath and produce a report. So finally, in September 2012, the panel publishes its report and a website containing 450,000 pages of material. The panel concludes that the main cause of the disaster was an overall, quote, lack of police control. Mm. Other factors like crowd safety, customs and practices, and the response of police and emergency services also played a part. It says that as many as 41 deaths could have been averted by better rescue efforts alone. The 41 human beings. Some of the findings that were on the day of the disaster, police officers and stewards were only worried about crowd management, not safety. And they were so busy making sure no hooliganism was going on that they failed to realize all the f- fatal mistakes. Lack of communication um, between those on Leppings Lane and those inside the, the stadium. Just a complete failure and breakdown of, you know, crowd response and crowd control and safety. It also comes out police officers who were there that day were discouraged from telling their true account of what they witnessed, Mm -hmm. giving like false reports and testimony. 116 officer statements about the incident were changed to remove unfavorable comments about how the South Yorkshire police handled the situation. For example, the word chaotic was removed from any paperwork Mm -hmm. so as not to seem like they had anything to do with it. Following the panel's report, a second coroner's inquest is finally held. The first one took place in 1991. And after hearing very biased evidence, the jury found that all victims had died accidentally. But at the end of the second inquest, the jury finds that all victims were, quote, unlawfully killed, which is means someone is responsible for this. Yeah. Following the second inquest, six people are charged with various offenses in relation to the Hillsborough disaster. The most serious of the charges goes to Duckenfield. He's charged with a 95 counts of manslaughter by gross negligence. Sadly, after two trials, he's acquitted, leaving the family members of the victims devastated and angry over the egregious lack of accountability. Leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, says that the lack of accountability over Hillsborough is, quote, the greatest scandal of British policing of our lifetimes. Multiple members of Parliament call for laws to be changed, quote, to prevent another catastrophic failure of justice. So, like, let's it, let's avoid both this kind of disaster from happening again. But let's also make sure that there's some accountability if something like this happens again as well by changing the laws. Like it's just failure after failure. Because it is a second disaster. It's like this horrible thing happens to these people. And then the second disaster is they're blamed. Just picture it. Your loved one is smashed against a fence on the cover of some fucking piece of shit tabloid. Like, it's just... It's like a horrible situation. And then they went and made it as bad as they possibly could. 
In one of the interviews with a victim's sister, she says that that night they had to go identify her brother's body and then they just kept them at the police station like with the like in a random room not even treating them like they were victims they treated them like troublemakers like the the families of the well, right because they're those the police are seeing this thing explode in right. front of them of like oh no all these people have a voice all these right. people are going to this is all going to like settle down and then they're going to see right. what happened. And it's that thing of like, we fucked up, we fucked up, we fucked up. Like, don't, don't say sorry or you're taking accountability for it or don't be kind. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. keep deflecting. Oh, it's, it's really ugly. Really evil. So while the families still hope for justice that could possibly never come, they maybe find solace in knowing that people haven't forgotten the victims. For one thing, Rupert Murdoch's The Sun, that was so blasphemous and terrible, has been completely boycotted in Liverpool. So it's been 30 fucking years since that happened. And people in Liverpool refuse to buy it. A lot of shops refuse to sell it. They're just like, fuck you. It's wow. pretty amazing, like banning together to to just completely tells Rupert Murdoch to fuck off. You know, right. That makes sense because I'm pretty sure it was the sun. There was a story I did and I had an article from it and uh, several people let me know on Twitter, like it's garbage. You should not be ever referring to because it's like that kind of stuff over here. It's all, you know, I don't know. It's, it's seen. We see it in a national geog, um, National Enquirer kind right. of way where it's like it's so obvious that it's fake. Right. Tabloids over here have a goofy kind of, you know, like Bat Boy. You think of it as this like this ridiculous <laughs> silly thing. Boy. Exactly. Not as like right. well, nowadays. Not the like, daily paper. Yeah, but nowadays what you rely upon. Fake news is just the norm now. But I think back then it was taken at face value. Who knows? Right. There are also nearly twenty memorials erected in memory of the victims. On the anniversary of the disaster, flags are flown at half-mast and many people hold moments of silence or visit memorials to pay their respects for the 96 innocent victims of the Hillsborough disaster. And that that is the highest death toll in British sporting history, the Hillsborough disaster. (sighs) That's here's why I love what that you did that story is because in my mind, the the hooliganism element of that story is what stuck out is yeah. like is what i kind of had it labeled under yeah but it was also such a kind of distant thing it was just like oh man they're out of control like right the idea that it was turned around onto the victims as being like basically they got what they deserve totally. is so disgusting yeah it looks like a crowd rioting but it's fu- it's fucking not yeah wow great job thank you There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. 
Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Here's what's interesting. My story also takes place in foggy old England town. Oh, all right. And it's fascinating to me. It it involves several of the things I find fascinating. This is the story. We'll just, so there's no spoilers. I'll just say this is the story of the Lindo woman. Okay. So, so the sources for this, um, sciencehistory.org. There's an article called Bodies in the Bog, the Lindo Mysteries by Dave Samet and Chantel Craig. The Beauty Who Wed a Beast uh, from the Liverpool Echo newspaper. Unearthing the Living Dead from the Mail and Guardian. Europe's famed bog bodies are starting to reveal their secrets uh, by Joshua Levine and Smithsonian Magazine. I actually went down a real Smithsonian Magazine hole as well because there's so many there's like as they're discovering stuff they're just they're doing the things of like looking into the stomachs and being like (sighs) now this this was here and they're they're trying to figure out if they were human sacrifices were they drugged beforehand so that it wasn't such a negative experience but then you know it's also like what do they what did they have on their on their persons like what was in their pockets and what was what were they buried with kind of a thing yeah so cool. The BritishMuseum.org has a web page called Curator's Comments that there's great information on. Mm. And then, of course, there's the Linda Woman's Wikipedia page. Very cool. This takes place in northwest England. So in Cheshire County, there's a 1500 acre bog called Lindo Moss. Ooh. And it formed after the ice from the last ice age melted about 11,000 years ago. And the wet acidic conditions of the swampy land leads to the formation of peat, which is decomposed vegetable matter. Mm. And so when you cut and dry out peat and peat moss, 
it serves as fuel or mineral rich soil for crops. Mm. I love a good um, peat bog or good bog. Right? So like creepy and like so creepy, mysterious. Well, and back in the like the t- the druid times, right? Uh-huh. They believed that bogs were where because it's wh- basically bogs take place. There's no there can't be trees around, so uh-huh. it's like under an open sky. There's water and land mixed together in mm-hmm. this mysterious ways mm-hmm. and sometimes the bog would release gases and the gases mi- mixed with any kind of a low-lying fog would look mm-hmm. like sparkles and people thought they were fairies sure and so for a long time people believed that bogs were like a place uh like a portal to another world because <gasps> like, that's where right it makes me think of the labyrinth i don't know why like a boggy creepy yeah. Yes, like somewhere where like a hero and a unicorn would get stuck. Totally. And and try to make it out. Right. Or the never ending story. Yeah, sure. So essentially in the 1400s and the 1500s, the locals would dig for peat. And first they do it by hand, um, which made me think of the hilarious scene from Monty Python's uh, Holy Grail, Mm -hmm. where it's like. I'm, I'm not a man. I'm a woman. You know, the thing where the, the guy, he's like, I'm your king. And they're like, they're just digging in the mud. But yeah. That, that is what people did. Yeah. Because, because they used it to burn. They used it like coal and they also used it for their crops. So they would dig by hand. Then later, after the Industrial Revolution, by mechanical excavators to be sold and used for fuel and soil. Mm. So on May 13th, 1983, two peat diggers, Andy Mould and Stephen Dooley, they're manning one of these excavation conveyor belts when they see a round object sticking out of the peat. Mm. So they think it must be an old soccer ball. So they take it off the belt. But when they clean off the dirt, they see it's actually a human skull. It's missing a jawbone, but other than that, it's intact. It's almost an intact human head. <gasps> There's still hair, skin, and any even an eyeball in one sock. Oh my god! So they immediately um, alert their manager, a man named Ken Harewood, and Ken calls the police. So basically, they do some forensic testing, and they learn the authorities learn the skull most likely be- belonged to a woman who was being th- between thirty and fifty years old. And immediately, the cops think of a case that has been like basically in the area and gone cold and unsolved for a really long time. And it's the 1961 disappearance of a woman named Malika de Fernandez. Mm -hmm. So the investigators had always suspected that her husband, Peter Reinbart, had murdered her, but because they'd never found her body, they couldn't prove anything. And the case had been cold for 23 years. So now they think they've got their big break. Mm. So in the 1950s, we'll talk about Malika first and her husband. So in the 50s, 32-year-old Malika Maria D. Fernandez is working as a portrait artist, and she works part-time as a waitress at a coffee shop in Manchester, probably a tea shop. Hmm. But I want you to understand what I'm talking about. So I'll say a coffee shop. <laughs> uh, Thank so you. One even- Ooh, appreciate you. Right? Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's called supporting you. <laughs> Uh, that's called translating for you. <laughs> so one evening in 1959, she's serving tea to an executive for the British Overseas Airways Corporation. And his name is Peter Reinbart. 
They, the two quickly hit it off in less than two hours after meeting. Peter proposes to Malika. What? And they get married four days later. No. Yes. Okay. Here's the thing. This is not love at first sight like we'd want to believe it is. Because it's kind of more of a business arrangement. Peter is actually gay. Oh. But at this time in England, being openly gay Mm -hmm. is against the law. And it would remain illegal in England until 1967. Jesus. So if anyone found out that Peter was living as a gay man, he could lose his job. He could face jail time. So basically, marrying Malika provides the cover that he needs while he meets secretly with his real lover in in real life, a man named Philip Clark. Mm -hmm. And for Malika, being married to a kind of a rich airline employee means that she can get cheap airline tickets and she can travel much more, which is something she loves to do. Mm So it's it works for both of them. Yeah. It only lasts a couple months. Um, Peter and Malika get a divorce by the end of 1959. And Peter and Philip move to a cottage in the affluent Manchester suburb of Wilmslow. But Malika stays in touch. And according to Peter, she regularly hits him up for money. Hmm. So sometime in 1960, 1961, Malika goes missing. And when police eventually tracked down her last known movements, they learned Malika had recently paid a visit to Peter's cottage. When they go to question him about her and her whereabouts, he denies knowing anything about her disappearance. And he explains that Malika is an avid traveler, so she could actually be anywhere. But the investigators are very suspicious. So they search Peter's cottage and they dig up the surrounding yard around the cottage, Mm -hmm. but they don't find anything. There's no evidence to hold Peter on. He's free to go about his life. And between 1961 and 1963, he moves all around um, England, making a sizable living from his catering business. He also owns several coffee shops and fish and chip shops, and he rents out a guest home. So he's he's basically took his money from his fancy airline job. Mm -hmm. And now he's, you know, figured out ways to make more money. So as Peter makes a comfortable living for himself in this new chapter of his life, Malika's case goes cold. So he, Peter, eventually settles in Portsmouth along England's south coast in 1963. So 12 years later, Peter meets a man named Paul Corrigan, and they begin to run a cabaret club together called the Northcote Hotel. And they make a bunch of money on it. Mm -hmm. And Peter actually has enough money to buy more real estate. He even buys an apartment in Malta. So he's doing very well for himself. But these two men are not just business partners. They have actually a very dark connection because when they're not managing this nightclub, they roam the streets of Portsmouth looking for young boys Mm. to kidnap and sexually assault. What? Yes. When they're finally caught and arrested in 1977, they're both sentenced to seven years in prison and they only serve four. They're So they're both released in January of 1981. Okay, so Paul Corrigan's freedom doesn't last long because just one year after his release from jail, he kidnaps, rapes, tortures, and kills a 13-year-old boy named John Haddon. Hmm. So Paul Corrigan's arrested soon after, and he returns to prison with a life sentence. So that story in in and of itself and on its own is crazy and horrifying that basically these two would turn out to be like violent pedophiles find each other and then 
yeah, it's it's no, that's horrible, terrible. Paul Gorgon ends up going to jail for the rest of his life, though. And but when he basically is arrested, he immediately is like, hey, just so you know, when I was in jail, uh, Peter Reinbart told me that he killed his wife, Malika D. Fernandez. Uh -uh. So the police track Peter down. He now lives in Knightsbridge in London and they question him again. But again, he denies having anything to do with Malika's disappearance. And there is no evidence except for a child murderer's word to go on. So there's nothing that the authorities can do. And Peter remains free. But all of that changes two years later on May 13th, 1983, with this discovery of the skull in the Lindo Moss bog. So basically, they find this head and the investigators remember this guy, mm -hmm. know that he was, uh, you know, basically a contemporary of Paul Corrigan, mm -hmm. um, this monster person. And they're like this, this guy connect being around this woman who has just disappeared off the face of the earth yeah. cannot be good. Like, yeah. this is not, you know, this is not a good guy. So investigators once again track down Peter Reinbart uh, about a month after the skull is found. Uh, so this time they finally have evidence. They mm -hmm. have a body. When they inform Peter that a woman's body has been found that matches the description of Malika, he finally confesses to murdering his ex-wife. Mm -hmm. He tells police, quote, it's been so long I thought I would never be found out. <sighs> so in a statement to police, Peter says that Malika came over to his cottage sometime around six, 1961, 60 or 61. No mm. one's sure about that date, but that she was de demanding money and she was threatening that if he doesn't pay her, that she's going to out him to the world as a gay man. So mm. he would lose his job and he would get probably get arrested or at least be, you know, in the police's eye. Yeah. So this is all according to Peter. This is one sided story. But right. basically he says a fight breaks out and he says, quote, something just boiled over inside me. He says he strangled Malika to death. He dismembered her and then he tried to burn her remains. But when that didn't work, he placed her body parts in sacks and buried them out in the bog near the edge of his property. Mm. So basically, now the investigators take this uh, confession. They go back to Lindo Moss and they try to find the rest of Malika's remains. But after a thorough search, they don't find anything. And this gnaws at the lead detective. His name is Detective Inspector George Abbott. He's got enough evidence to put Peter away, but he still sends this the skull to the lab at Oxford University in October 1983 to take a closer look at it. And when the lab results come back several weeks later, investigators are stunned by what they learn. <gasps> Radiocarbon dating shows that the skull could not have belonged to Malika de Fernandez because it's more than 17 centuries old. <gasps> and it dates back to the year 250 A.D. Holy shit. OK, so now I'm going to get to talk to you about one of truly a thing in the world that I think is the most fascinating, which are bog bodies. Bodies in the bog, baby. Bodies in the bog, right? Fascinating. So if you have ever read National Geographic magazine while you waited for your parents to be done at a dinner party, you know about <laughs> bog bodies like I do. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm going to, I'll give you a little, a little walk here now. Uh, Jay did this research. He did an amazing job. And I was like, please make the bog party part as long as you want to, <laughs> because I find it fascinating. No, I'm obsessed. And I'm, amazing. So, I'm so excited about this. Okay, good. 
So for the last few hundred years, the incredibly well-preserved bodies of men and women from thousands of years ago have been discovered in Denmark, in the Netherlands, in Ireland, in the UK, in northern Germany, and even in North America. Mm. And the one thing that they all have in common is that they were found in bogs. But not just any kind of bog will preserve a human body. Mm -hmm. There are four primary factors that make up the perfect conditions. First of all, the bog must have a specific type of moss called sphagnum moss. Okay. Definitely pronouncing that wrong. Second, the bog has to be moist year round. It can't dry out at any time. Mm -hmm. And third, the bog soil must remain at a maximum temperature of 39 degrees when the body is buried and the average annual temperature of the region has to stay below 50 degrees. Um, So basically, now here's the, this is kind of detailed part, but it's pretty fascinating. So this sphagnum moss is very specific kind of moss. It sits on top of a watery surface of the bog and it makes the water way more acidic than normal. Um, And that acidity destroys the minerals that would otherwise contaminate the water. And live moss dies. It sinks to the bottom of the water. It undergoes its own decaying process. That dead moss breaks down. It releases sugars and humic acids. Um, and then the remaining live moss on top acts as a sort of seal. So it protects the body beneath from any sort of outside interference. Wow. So they got a perfect, this like perfect stew for preserving a body. Yes. And, and those conditions create a preservation matter that's more efficient than the mummification process used in ancient Egypt. Wow. Mostly because it's nature doing it and it's accidental. Sure. But instead of decaying normally, bog bodies kept in these conditions, they end up tanning like leather Hmm. and even human hair can remain intact, although it turns this coppery red color. So when they first found bog bodies, they thought the people were redheaded. And then they like uh, science slowly revealed that it was not just these like redheaded people being sacrificed by their (laughs) tribe or whatever. Sure. It's just what the um, the bog is doing. Yeah. So one of the most famous bog bodies, and this is the this is the bog body that was featured in National Geographic, or at least the first one I ever saw. Yeah. And it's the Tolland Man of Denmark. He was discovered in 1950, but his body dated back to the fourth century BC mm. in the pre-Roman Iron Age. The Tallinn man is so well-preserved that he looks like a silvery gray old man who's sleeping in the fetal position. Mm. But he he has all the features of his face, the skin on his face. He he even has like a three-day beard growth. Whoa. Like it's so detailed for someone that from that long ago. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And he's, it looks like he's been spray painted dark silver. Yeah. It's, it's Does it look really, like the tin man kind of? Yes. Except for dark the the tin part would be darker. Okay. And he literally looks like he's sleeping and he kind of looks like he's smiling. Okay, I've seen like, this for sure. As a kid, yeah. how terrified were you when you saw that? No, I loved it. You did? Well, okay. because yes, like all the the skin is kept on. But yeah. and and there's internal organs and stuff in Aye. them. They have actually they've done autopsies of bog bodies and like dissect and seen the brains and stuff and gone through and like that's you know on the Tolland man uh his stomach and and intestinal tract were intact oh my god and they figured out what he ate (gasps) that day like that's how 
how intact this human being was from so long ago. It's just was so it, fascinating. Was it a sandwich? Did he have a sandwich? It was burnt porridge. No. <laughs> yes. Oh my it, God. Yes. It's so what basically. Here's the another fascinating aspect. He has a leather garret around his neck. Oh. Yeah. So it suggests the possibility he was murdered. Yeah. Or he was a human sacrifice. Right. And this is a common feature in bog bodies. Many are found with evidence of blunt force trauma, suffocation, slashed throats. And it's basically because archaeologists can't know what they were doing right before they were put in the bog. They they can't tell um, because some sacrifice like the there's some some bog bodies are what they call triple killed where they're like stabbed hung, and and they say that's very common for ritual sacrifice Uh and it makes sense if it were ritual sacrifice because if the temperatures were that low it must have meant they probably were like it uh losing crops or they you know what i mean they were sacrificing to whoever putting bodies in the bog because the thinking back then was they got so much from the bog by being able to use the peat in all those different ways that they had to give back so they've found weapons in bogs they've found ancient they found a book from like yes they've they've found stuff in there and plus bodies so it isn't necessarily just people trying to hide a murder victim or whatever they think they were used kind of ritualistically Mm. because they were seen as these places between worlds and it as, was like as someone is obsessed with metal detecting this is my fucking dream can you imagine right? yes right does there does a metal detector work on a bog probably not but i would wonder because it has to be it's like damp and mucky it's yeah. just like a big it's like a pond that somebody filled with dirt yeah but like straw yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we're moss, I guess. We're, well, si- we're scientists. Bog. Because that's you're not the confusing you're part. You're a bog doctor. That's why. Thank you for asking that question. So it made it look like I just know this stuff off the top of my head and not that it's just the next sentence on the page of like, um, he'd eaten porridge 12 to 24 hours <laughs> oh, before he died. Oh, you just knew died. that. I couldn't believe it. Gosh, she's so educated. Okay, so. So this, of course, then... It goes wide, right? That it's like, oh, this this skull that was found is from thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. which is very important and, you know, archaeologically significant. And so, of course, Peter Reinbart recants his detailed confession oh, about yeah. how he killed his his brief wife. Um, I just see yeah. him um, like tugging on his collar going, oh, yes, I didn't, exactly. I didn't even have to. It's kind of the perfect like. For this to happen to anybody, yeah, this guy seems to be the kind of person that's like, that's really awesome that this, yes, it's a, it's a terrible misunderstanding, yes, and usually it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy, but it, in this case, this yeah. guy, it's perfect. You belong in motherfucking prison, dude. Okay, so now he's armed with this new spin on his previous confession story. So he heads to trial on December 11th, 1983. And on the second day of the trial, Peter takes the stand and tells the court that he saw Malika in June of 1960 or 61. The beginning of his story remains the same. Malika stopped by the cottage that he shared with his male partner in Wimslow and asked Peter for money. He said no. Then the new account is when he refused to pay, she not only threatened to expose his homosexuality, but she also, quote, lunged at his face with her long fingernails. 
end quote. So he claims he acted in self-defense, mm-hmm. grabbing her by the shoulders and shaking her. And the next thing he knew, she was dead. Jesus. Basically, when he's questioned about what he did with the body at this point, he says, quote, I was terrified and I could not think clearly. Uh, the only thing that came to mind was to hide her. So he takes an axe, chops her up, buries her remains in a drainage ditch along the edge of Lindo Moss, just 300 yards from his cottage. <sighs> so the trial lasts three days. And on December 14th, 1983, after a three hour deliberation, the jury finds 57 year old Peter Reinbart guilty of murder of Malika Maria de Fernandez 23 years after her death. Wow. And he's sentenced to life in prison. So he goes to prison. Finally, a cold case is closed. Mm-hmm. Basically, a year later, the same peat digger, Andy Mould, yet again makes another disturbing discovery in Lindo Moss. He pulls what he thinks is a piece of wood off of a conveyor belt. But then after they clean it off, he realizes and the, the workers see it has toenails. <laughs> So the crew realizes they've just found a human leg. And once again, they call the police who come. They shut the worksite down and they're hoping that they're finding Malika's remains. Yeah. But meanwhile, Cheshire County archaeologist Rick Turner catches wind about this discovery. So he goes down to Lindo Moss. And in addition to that leg, they end up finding a flap of skin which then leads them to the discovery of the rest of this body. And when the remains are sent out for radiocarbon testing, again, it's another ancient bog body. What? They determined that these body parts belong to a man in his early 20s. He was about 5'6". He weighed anywhere from 132 to 143 pounds. He had neatly manicured fingernails and his facial hair had been cut with shears. Hmm. So they knew that he was probably a wealthy person. Yeah. And they they basically dubbed him the Lindo Man or Lindo 2. So the woman's skull was Lindo 1. This is Lindo 2. And this would not be the last body found at Lindo Moss. In 1987, a third headless body, Lindo 3, is discovered. It's also found to be from the Iron Age. And there are theories that the skull from Lindo 1 that was originally found belongs to the Lindo 3 body. Either that, there's a whole nother fucking, like, head down there somewhere. I mean... It's crazy. Dig it all up. Dig it I want to see everything down there. Drain the bog. Drain the drain bo- the bogs. So further inspection of Lindo Man shows that he was murdered. That there's blows to the head. They think it was by axe. A blunt object broke his neck and one of his ribs. And the skin on this body is so well preserved that you can even see markings on his neck from a possible hanging or strangulation. Mm. And on top of that, his throat was sliced ear to ear. So this is one of the situations where. They believe that's the sign of uh, a human sacrifice. Or it could have been an execution because I feel like back then and the, you know, they would overkill, they torture you. So it could have been like an execution. I mean, sure, it could really be anything. Yeah. But they they also overkilled for human sacrifice. Right. So, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, because because they would, you know, they would if you were uh, there were a lot of archaeologists that believe that these were criminals. Right. Because they would always hang criminals. Oh. And then but that 
then there's other people who say, but the bog was like this sacred place. Right. So it was actually an honor to be put in like the, the Lindo man. He, he was clearly rich. Oh, and he had, I see. He, like his clothes, um, contained fibers that weren't from the area. So okay. he had probably had money and this, this was probably, there's theories that being placed there meant that it was an honor. Right. Basically. Right. Iron Age shit. It's hard to relate to now. <laughs> so today, Lindo Mann's remains are held at the British Museum in London. And after being removed from the bog and studied, Lindo Mann was submerged in a chemical called polyethylene glycol, which prevented him from be- from drying out. Basically, Ooh. you know what the Lindo Mann looks like? If the picture that I saw was him, it looks a lot like the the cover of that one Radiohead album. Oh, the kind of silvery. Like, yeah. It looks a little bit like that where okay. he's, he's not silvery. The Lindo man is, uh, is kind of a yellow. He it has that kind of tanned, yeah. um, tanned look. So even though they made all those discoveries of these additional bodies to this day, Malika D. Fernandez's remains have never been found. Mm. And that is the story of the murder of Malika D. Fernandez and the discovery of the bog body, the Lindo man. Karen, it's one of right? those stories where I'm like, damn, I wish I had picked that one before you had because I like it so much. <laughs> well, I'm like, how come I didn't know about this one when we were doing shows in the UK? Totally. It's a perfect because, I mean, it's a story within a story within a story. It is. It's it is. crazy. Wow, it's so weird that we both did UK stories or I know. England stories. Great job. That was that was a adventure, like a fucked up adventure. So fucked up. Yeah. So fucked up. Um, um Is it time we, to do some fucking hoorays? Let's do some fucking hoorays. Let's do it. Okay. This first one's from Drea Girl on Instagram. Are we still doing fucking arrays? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We don't know either. <laughs> Biggest fucking hooray ever. All of my student loans have been forgiven. I can finally start the home buying process and I have waited years to find a forever house for me and my kids. So blessed fucking hooray. Wow. Thank God. Yeah. Forgive Ooh. those loans. Okay. This is from Kayla O'Hare on Twitter. She's at Jube Cube. <laughs> She says, my fucking hooray is when I was younger, my mom would tell me that I was the first grandchild born after the death of my grandfather, and I helped pull my nan Alice out of her funk. Hmm. And now, 36 years later, on October 4th, my nan is turning 100. (gasps) Oh, nan Alice, happy birthday. Oh, my God. 100. 100 years old. What a badass you are. That's so rad. Okay, this one is from the fan cult. My fucking array this week is that my two best friends on this earth married each other in the privacy of their front yard. The ceremony was planned within one week and had to be kept a secret as their parents don't approve of gay marriage. While sad and difficult for both of them, I've never seen two people happier together and more healthy before. C and Elise, I love you. I support you. You will always be my sisters and I will always relish in being part of your chosen family together. Fucking array for honest love, Christina in Atlanta. Oh, I know. I love that. I know. Chosen family. That's just I love that. I love that saying so much. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that have to live that way. Mm -hmm. And 
and really make the best of it in that way where it's like, you know, I've been, I have a gigantic family and extended family. I've been to tons of weddings Mm -hmm. and the, if you're at a wedding where everyone is so stoked for the two people getting married and the love is real, I mean, that's, that's the point of having families. Yeah. So whether you're a quote unquote real or, you know, chosen family, whatever, it's like, they're the ones doing it right. Totally. It's so beautiful. Congratulations, you guys. Yeah. Congratulations. How about this? After three years of people, <laughs> after three years of people asking me what I wanted for Christmas, my birthday, Mother's Day, etc., and me telling them a fan cult membership, <laughs> I finally said fuck it and I bought my own. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm probably way more excited than I should be, but oh well. It makes me happy, and that's all that matters. Honestly, after my only sister passed away unexpectedly in 2018, my new motto is that life is too short to not do what makes me happy. So there stay sexy and buy your own happiness Heidi in Wyoming you're beautiful thank you thank you for your support we appreciate you and we're start uh, we're starting to do more videos oh, yeah. and do more um stuff for the fan cult because we've you know when we took our break we took our break from everything yeah we so did. we're just starting to get, to get that stuff fired up again and we're very excited to be doing it so yeah. Heidi welcome um you know we're glad you're with us. We're glad you're all with us. What a bunch yes. of badasses our listeners are. And we're so fucking honored every time, every single time I meet one. I met a few when I was in Santa Barbara over the weekend. And every single fucking time, they're rad women. Like every time. Okay, this one uh, says, hey, Karen, Georgia, and everyone with paws and mustaches. My fucking hooray this week is that I'm finally, after four years of trying, getting treatment for my borderline personality disorder and also out of the relationship that was making it worse. Y'all have mm. helped. I know. Y'all have helped me countless times and I didn't feel like I had anyone to turn to. I would just turn on your podcast and have something other to focus on than my raging mental health disorders. Thank you for helping me and many others, Zyla. And then it says, an 18-year-old who has seen Beetlejuice. (laughs) (laughs) Zyla, congratulations. I'm so, it makes me so happy to hear that you're taking care of business. That's amazing. Yeah. That's the first fucking step, man, is just to like try. Get in there. Yeah. Do the work. Got it. You might as well. That's right. Yeah. Very brave. Yes. Okay. Let's see. This one's from the Fan Cult Forum. It's from Kim's of FPC. And it says, so this year I started to become a court appointed special advocate, which basically is like big brothers, big sisters, but for kids in foster care. And my role is to get to know my kid so I can tell the court what she wants and needs. After months of training and then waiting to find out who my kid would be, I finally got assigned a teenage girl to be my Casa kid. When I went to meet her and was I was warned she was shy and slow to open up. Uh, while I was making small talk, I asked her what her favorite TV show was and her response, accident, suicide, murder. Immediately, I asked if she had seen the Paul Holes episodes. And of course, she had. And we immediately <gasps> began fangirling. My fucking hooray is that our mutual love of Paul Holes and curiosity about true crime seemed to get her out of her shell. And she's opening up to me more. Thank you, Karen and Georgia, for introducing me to Paul Holes and giving me something to break the ice with a kid who is normally hesitant to trust adults. Oh, my God. Love it. That got me. Did it get you? That got me. Well, it's such 
It's such important work. Yeah. So thank you, Kims of FPC, for doing that work and for making the effort uh, yeah. to connect with that kid. That's one of those jobs that I think are so important for people to know about because you think of fostering, you're like, well, I don't have room or time in my life to foster, but there's little things you can do in within the foster care system to help kids that aren't these huge undertakings. It's that, the ad, what is it called again? Court-appointed special advocate. Right. So that you can do that that isn't as big of a commitment, but it's still so necessary and important. So I, I fucking love that. And I love that she was able to connect over true crime. That's great. And uh, over our our love also of Paul Holes, which just by the way, Paul Holes is coming out with a book, his first like biographical book um, called Unmasked yeah. My Life solving america's cold cases so, so awesome congrats paul it's rad yeah mr paul holes um well thanks for listening you guys thanks for sending yeah. us and send us your fucking hoorays any way you can and um yeah thanks for being a part of this you know this conversation <laughs> this this sometimes depressing <laughs> sometimes horrifying uh but oftentimes fun yeah. conversation sometimes uplifting too who to thunk it in a true crime murder podcast yeah, we try. We you try. Know, we do our best. We do our best. <laughs> All right. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe! <laughs>